In this episode, I host a conversation between Shinzen Young, American meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, and Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student. We take an inside look as Chelsea consults Shinzen on her current research project, a review of the neuroscientific literature that examines states of self-identification and non-dual awareness. In the course of the discussion, Shinzen details the many meanings and connotations of the word Tantra, including its connection to Karma Mudra, or spiritual sex. He discusses the importance of definitions. Chelsea asks if all traditions lead to the same end, or if different techniques lead to different types of enlightenment. And Shinzen reveals what the gurus of the world must learn from the culture of science. So without further ado, Shinzen Young and Chelsea Fasano. Shinzen Young and Chelsea Fasano, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Hi. So Chelsea, why don't we start off by, if you say a little bit about who you are um, and the research project you're interested in, and then we'll just go from there. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, I'm a student at Columbia University, and I'm currently in the beginning stages of doing a research project, which looks at meditation from both Buddhist and neuroscientific standpoints. Um, the focus of the project specifically will be looking at experiences and concept of self and non-self from both subjective, neurological, and textual standpoints. Uh, my advisors are Dr. Alfredo Spagna, Dr. Um, Nicholas Van Dam, and Dr. Jay Garfield, all of whom I'm very excited to be working with. Um, so I was talking to Steve, and he suggested that I reach out to you, Shinzen, to see if you'd be willing to talk to me um, about the project, share some of your knowledge, or point me in the right direction in terms of certain obstacles I'm coming across in my research. And um, as I've been reading your work, I've just been so relieved and excited about how scientific your concepts of meditation are. I found them really, really useful in terms of conveying meditation to my professors, formulating hypotheses, and research questions, so I'm very excited to be on the call with you. <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> not to make ridiculous comparisons, uh, but Richard Feynman once said the happiest thing for him was if he discovered something and then other scientists could find it useful for them, that, you know, that's about as good as it gets. So thanks for giving me that pleasant feel in uh, uh, body sensation that is emotional in nature. Um, and uh, this is definitely something we can talk about. Um, I have a few questions though. Uh, first, uh, I'd like to actually fill in more of the Chelsea story uh, your personal story, uh, and I'm thinking of uh, th three parts, one that would precede the research that we're going to discuss today, and then maybe part, another part would be where you would see yourself at midlife and how that might relate to your academic training now, and then where you would see yourself at end life or in the what they call wanian um, in Chinese, you know, the... Uh, the, the uh, sunset years, um, where you would see yourself, and then what immediately preceded this research. And then I can frame it <clears throat> uh, as a, a story that fits in a larger story. Mm -hmm. I'm getting interviewed. 
Okay, I'll try to make this concise. Who I was in the more distant past, I would say that applies to this project is, I stumbled across, you could say, uh, meditation when I was around 16 or 17. And I had the really amazing luck to have some profound experiences quite initially that really made me fall in love with meditation in a way that I think only a teenager can fall in love with something. And I developed this intense passion for the practice. And then I grew up, <laughs> I'm now 34, and my practice grew up with me, or so I would like to think. <laughs> um, so as I've been developing uh, myself emotionally, psychologically, and intellectually, I've carried with me my concepts of practice, my concepts of self, and my feelings of who I'd like to be and what I'd like to give, and those have evolved through the years. Um, I went back to school four years ago because I began to feel that, um, these things are a bit hard to put into words, but that there would be no meaning to my practice unless I could convey it in a way that others could share it. Can I interrupt you for a second? Yes. There's an ex expression that was said of Zen master Lin Ji. Uh, <clears throat> no sooner had he seen it that he could use it. <clears throat> it. Seeing it is just the beginning. The rest is using it, which is primarily for the benefit of others. So you're spot on in that regard. Mm. Sorry to interrupt. There'll be more interruptions. That's my style. Yeah. <laughs> Please continue with the Chelsea story. So, um, so I think I see. Um, I also had a few mentors of mine specifically tell me that it would be best if I use my intellect in service of my devotion. So I began to see them more seamlessly as interrelated and also through examining the transmission of Eastern concepts to the West, I started to become passionate about how that transmission could be done most accurately and with the most kindness. And for me, that means speaking to people in a language they comprehend naturally, which is science in the West. And so here I am. <laughs> um, doing it excellent and is the idea that you'll become a professional scientist with this specialty or is it some other idea maybe a meditation teacher but with a science background or a therapist or who knows some other uh, vector yeah i think i mean it's interesting i was just talking to my advisor professor Spania, about this um a few days ago and we were talking about the trajectory of my intellectual development at columbia and how because my motivation has been 
this deep desire to be of service, I think the way that I do that has been less important to me than doing it, which has made my approach more malleable as in wherever I think I will be the best fit, I will probably go. But I do see myself and have a serious desire to do clinical work in the future. So I imagine my, I mean, I'll tell you my ultimate dream and then- Yeah, what's the ultimate and dream? And then we can see if it, if it happens. <laughs> my ultimate dream is to uh, fix the world before I die. So, hey, you know. <laughs> me too, me too. That. Oh, good, okay. it's the same dream. That's another Chinese expression. Uh, if you, it's not enough to share the bed, you have to share the dream. Uh, that is an expression. <laughs> So I didn't want to put words into your mouth, though. But <laughs> it is, I mean, it's my version of fixing the world a little bit. And I think my vision right now of my dream way of getting there would be to somehow convince someone to let me do it kind of interdisciplinary PhD, studying the intersection of meditation and neuroscience, but also of various classical tantric yoga practices in neuroscience and yogas, uh, sexual yogas and yogas that promote intimacy and seeing how I can break those practices down and look at what they're doing on a neurological level so I can help people create more intimacy. In you'd, get a PhD, you'd, you'd get a PhD uh, with the neuroscience of intimacy. Exactly. And, and then would that lead to a career? Uh, well, it's gonna lead to a career, but a science career or some other kind? Well, you said clinical, so. I think my ultimate dream, honestly, Shenzhen, would probably be to do a little bit of each, like a little science, a little clinical work, and a little bit of teaching meditation, and somehow yeah. just weave them together. That's the There's, kind of there, yeah, Welcome to the team. That's, <laughs> a, that's a new profession. I mean, seriously, that is a new profession. A uh, little bit of a scientist, a uh, little bit of a clinician, and, uh, you know, uh, teaching meditation on the side. And they, they're all one thing, really, because that's the field. So looks like you're going in the same general direction that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So obviously, anything that I can do to be of assistance. Um, one thing... Uh, well, it's not one thing. A dozen things come to mind based on what you've told me so far, but let's just start with one thing. <clears throat> uh, and this may or may not relate to the quote problems that you mentioned that you're encountering, which of course is what I wanna hear about, but general principle, um, if you're a, approaching uh, practice systems from a scientific point of view, many of those practice systems will be associated with traditions. Um, and not all, but many of those traditions will be from Asia, India, China, and such. But if, as you well know, there are Western lineages that are quite legitimate uh, contemplative practices. <clears throat> In encountering 
these traditions, you'll encounter terms in the languages of these traditions. Like, for example, the word tantra with its adjective tantric. One of the pivotal innovations that was part of the secret sauce that makes modern science what it is, was people like Francis Bacon insisting that we train ourselves to be sensitive to context. You can look up his four idols. His thinking needs modernization, but you can get the general idea. And it's important, it really helped create the experimental method. And the so be very, very careful about words because they mean different things or similar things or complicated related things in different contexts. They have different um, emotional valence and history in different contexts. When you're dealing <clears throat> with a place like India, which is called a subcontinent, it is huge. It has 3,000 years of history, approximately, I mean, tens of thousands if you go back to archaeology, but a long history of a literate culture. Be very careful about the adjective tantric. It means different things at different times in different places. And it would be very easy for a scientist to not to give that short shrift, which would be equivalent to a meditator from a cave deciding they're going to get a modern education, but deciding that the, the difference between uh, uh, that the difference between uh, energy force, power, and action, nah, that shouldn't, they shouldn't be different. These physicists say they're different, but I think they should all be the same thing. <laughs> well, that person does not have a sensitivity, in this case, to the definitions, okay? The scientist has to have a sensitivity that in different historical and and modern social context, words can mean different things. There is Hindu Tantra, there's Buddhist Tantra, there's Jain Tantra. Each one of them have hundreds of years of history and that history is spread over India and those words meant very different things at different times. Sure, there's something that sort of holds them together, but if you start talking about, you know, tantric, and that's all you're talking about to an Indologist, that's like talking about, uh, talking about Western religions when really you're describing Lutheran, Lutheran Christians. Lutheran Christians shouldn't be called Western religions. They represent something specific. So I would just 
encourage you to be never take a Sanskrit or Pali or Tibetan or Chinese Buddhist term and think it has a single meaning. <laughs> be very, very careful. And uh, th that would be the first thing to come to mind. Um, intimacy associated with sexuality, wow. That'll definitely get you a literary career. Actually, it's already gotten one of my uh, students a whole career. Really, seriously, she writes on this subject. Um, May I interject briefly? Or yeah, go I, ahead. I wanted to respond to your to your points before I get too many of them. Um, one, I completely and totally agree which is why I feel really passionate about involving religious scholars. So when I embarked on this project, I asked my neurology professor if it would be okay if I got a Buddhist scholar to consult me on creating operational definitions and looking at concepts, which is not traditional in academia. And he agreed, so I'm very grateful. And it's definitely been interesting trying to bridge the two because there's a lot less dialogue than you would imagine going on. and. One of the reasons is exactly this point. So actually part of the reason I'm interested in getting a PhD specifically in this area is that I think there is a huge amount of ambiguity and confusion. You mentioned, quote, meditation over here. And then I thought you mentioned, as a contrast, Tantra over here. How do you see the relationship between those two words? Well. We are getting into my imaginary PhD here, so I'm a lot less knowledgeable and in-depth about this than I am about my current research. But my understanding is that tantric traditions are a subset of larger yogic and meditative contemplative traditions throughout the world that share certain qualities and characteristics with each other. And I think those qualities and characteristics have been debated over time and through different scholars, but my understanding is that one of the distinctions that's been made is that they offer a form of spiritual practice that embraces uh, material reality as a vehicle to emptiness and as an extension of emptiness uh, in certain traditions. And so there's different practices that use, uh, for instance, things like negative emotions or uh, other things that different traditions have not used in spiritual practice, and it's more all-encompassing to use everything as a direct relationship to source. But this is my very rudimentary definition, nothing I would ever put in an academic paper, and so the idea of doing the PhD would be to refine this and offer better definitions because it uh, feels like there aren't good definitions right now, and to really do the traditions a better justice, uh, give them more honor by disambiguating so many of these terms. This is my future dream, not what I'm yeah. doing right now. <laughs> well, we have to prepare one step at a time. <laughs> so what, um, uh, let, me, let me reverse roles and say, if you were my advisor and I was doing my, thesis on this. Um, 
here's how I would formulate it. This is me though, just to give you an idea. If I was presented with uh, writing a thesis in this area, I think I would uh, um, first, I think you need to ask yourself how, well, now I'm talking to you again, <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. One would ask oneself, uh, how wide of a notion do I want to create here? I'm going to create a concept. That's what academics do. Hopefully, those concepts are useful <laughs> to people in the world. So we're going to create a concept. How wide do we want to go? Do we want to go to more or less work within late Hindu Tantra? That's a concept. Do we want to work broadly within Hindu Tantra? Do we want to extend to Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Tantra. Mm -hmm. Each of the three has their own, um, which is essentially to look at the full range of what has been, quote, Tantra in India. Do we want to look broader to approaches from over the world that may have some intersection and so forth with this. Of course, actually, we have to look at all of this before even deciding, right? And I'm sure this has uh, occurred to you. I will say broadly, <clears throat> Tantra is a Sanskrit word. It comes from India. There is the culture of greater India, which you should become familiar with. You probably are already. You know what that means geographically and historically. So many things developed in India will spread to greater India. And they'll spread beyond India to the Middle East, the West, and China big time. So uh, the, if I were to speak within the context of Buddhist Tantra, I think I could uh, speak with some confidence. That's what I was going to do my PhD on until um, I realized I'll never understand this shit until I actually experience it. And I didn't, you know, it's like took a little longer than I expected. <laughs> so you're that's why I have no I have no status. I'm ABD, all but dissertation PhD. But I think I wrote my PhD. I wrote my PhD in the school of getting results. Um, so the um, I can tell you how I would characterize um, to a gross oversimplification. <laughs> Um, the Buddhist tantric tradition to a gross oversimplification. It's a certain version of what you're saying. It's a way of working smart with sensory phenomena to get 
deep results. It's a way to work smart with certain, it's, a, it's using certain opportunities that have certain characteristics and doing that in a systematic way. To me, that's the Im most important innovation. But that innovation is covered over by layer after layer after layer after layer after layer of history, intersect rivalry, warfare, gurus, screwing gurus, and all that enters in to this is the way to do it. No, that's the way to do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, there is a central innovation that is, and the reason that I would do a PhD on it is it has relevance to the modern world. Otherwise, the PhD is cultural enrichment. Great. There's nothing wrong with, I'm all in favor of cultural enrichment. But if you want to do something that has some relevance to the modern world, and the modern world is in trouble, in case no one noticed, mm -hmm. then you want to look for, <laughs> to be tautological, you want to look for things that are relevant. Well, the general principle of working cleverly with a system of different kinds of physiological and other altered states, that's relevant. I built it into my system, of course, because I stole everything from other people. You could say I stood on the shoulders of giants, or you can say I'm the biggest Ghanif in the history of spirituality. Ghanif is a Yiddish word meaning someone who steals things in business. You know, so-and-so, that business guy over there, he's a Ghanif, watch out for him. Mm -hmm. So I, anyway, um, what they chose was interesting, but other traditions have chosen other similar stuff. And the early Buddhist tradition with its jhana practices actually makes use of a lot of the same material. And they would so contrast, they would say, forget what, that's, that's small vehicle. Tekpa Membo, that Membo, that's like the little vehicle. We're the blah 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 blah. The latest operating system, but really it's got a lot of overlap with early Buddhism. It's just now been covered over with mythology and politics and etc. etc. So I would say in there's lower Tantra and higher Tantra within Buddhist Tantra. My ordination is in lower Tantra, actually, technically. Shin, Shinzen is, that's my name. That's a lineage name from Shingon Buddhism. Tibetans would say, I only knew the lower, via, the lower forms of Tantra, but I know the higher forms because I read books and they've been published now, so. I haven't been initiated into them, but I'm, I'm pretty confident I know how they work. Uh, so there's a difference between the clever thing that the lower Tantra people do, which is then of course grandfathered into higher Tantra, but then there's these other th clever things that the higher Tantra people do, which are more physiological. 
the lower Tantra is more about merging through visualizations and deity yoga, that kind of thing. And that's the centerpiece of Shingon. But then what the Tibetans do is they add all this physiological stuff from Hatha yoga. But that's just adding physiological stuff from Hatha yoga. Anyone could do that. The clever thing is to work it into a system where it relates to Buddhist emptiness, compassion, and so forth. And that's what they did. But other traditions use other altered states, other physiologies, and also the the actual sexual practices as they may have existed in Tibet as a, as a, or other places, uh, as opposed to what is written on the page. Um, there are, there's a Westerner who was the, what do they call that? The karma mudra or something. The basically consort in English basically girlfriend or wife on the side. I, I, what, I, don't, I don't want to characterize it, but there was a Westerner who was that for one of the top Rinpoches. And she said what it was actually, and it's not exactly like what you would think from reading in the book. So there's that, there's the reality of, you know. So, if you want to talk about physical intimacy between humans um, and how it relates to meditation practice, yeah, we can talk about that. And that's a much broader context. That would include all traditions. Um, yeah, so. I have a few points. Um, yeah, go ahead. Your definition is obviously much more concise than mine, um, and uh, I wasn't—I I wasn't prepared to go into this topic, but I—I um, I think it's in a similar vein as what I'm thinking. I also felt, under the definition of relating to each moment and everything that arises in it as a potential direct vehicle to source, I felt your book was very tantric. Uh, in that you encourage the same uh, skills to be utilized regardless of what is arising in the moment. Which yeah, is yeah, I'm not, I'm but, not sure that's the best way to look at what characterizes tantric because each moment as a vehicle is not what I got from tantra. Oh, I got it from them, but in a different way. It was more through symbolism and ritual um, and a philosophical view that was very, very helpful. And we can go into the details of that, how I was inculcated. But the way the general approach that I use also, as you say, it seems like, oh yeah, every moment of ordinary experience is where we practice. That is absolutely as characteristic of Chan as it is of Tantra. And if you make a dichotomy that Tantra, what characterizes Tantra is, it's about this, this flavor of embodiment. I think you're going in a direction that's 
not the best conceptual map because actually each of the three Buddhist vehicles would say in our own way, each moment is. Uh, what Tantra does, at least Buddhist Tantra, is um, it does that in a specific way that was relevant to a specific time in a, a specific culture. And the components that they chose all fit together to form a system that works very well. By the, I think you already know this, but people listening in might not. <clears throat> By the time Tantric or Vajrayana Buddhism comes, comes about, um, the, um, the Buddha is no longer the Buddha as I would understand him. As I would understand the Buddha, the Buddha was a person who was an extraordinary meditator and an extraordinary creative expositor and came up with discoveries in the contemplative path that no one else had come up with. And so he was an innovator. He wasn't, quote, just deeply liberated, he figured out new stuff, and it changed the world. Um, so that's my understanding. He's a proto-scientist. But by the time just a few centuries had passed, no one thought they could ever become a Buddha because Buddha had become mythologized. You're 16 feet high, have a golden body, 100,000 lifetimes of sacrificing yourself and making good karma is, is what you need to get that kind of body. And if you don't have that kind of body, you can't be a Buddha, blah, blah, blah. How do you reach these people with something that's relevant to practice? Oh, easy. We'll make you a Buddha instantly. Visualize yourself as the Buddha, replace your mental talk with the Buddha's mantra, visualize the Buddha in front as well as over here, visualize yourself in an environment where the Buddha has put the body physically in a mudra and attend to the mantra, uh, to the emotions associated with that. Your samadhi has as its content the archetype until you merge and you live the myth right here and now, you can become a Buddha in this lifetime. But that was a message to a culture that had a certain problem. They'd forgotten early Buddhism. And then that's a little later, we've got that culture with all sorts of fancy schmancy yoga practices. Great, let's use it, but let's show how to make that for realization of emptiness and then show how from the emptiness, you have to come back to a self that functions uh, to an activity of self, which can still be the archetype. You can be channeling your humanity through that archetype, but we're now actually doing something that is a benefit to people. So they weaved altered physiology into deep, getting emptiness into cellular level. And they would use sex sometimes, either visualized or physical. But the important, but I don't think they had a concept of intimacy. Um, I mean, it would be there because it's there, but I'm not sure how much 
of that concept is in the tantric tradition. It's much more identifying with archetypes that are, you know, whatever. But the intimacy thing is very relevant to the modern world. And as I say, I've, I have a student that that's what she does. She writes books on mindfulness and sex. <laughs> um, so I would say they did a special job for a certain culture of the general job of form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Chan people do it differently and the Vipassana people do it differently. But I would say that that's what I would say, that those I think are the most important dimensions to look at. If I might interject, this is uh, totally fascinating, but I want to just give an opportunity to redirect uh, to uh, Chelsea your current research. I ought to add perhaps that uh, the student, I think Shinzen you're referring to is Jessica Graham. Is that, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Jessica Graham. Yeah, and uh, Mindful Sex, I think maybe it's her book. I, I'll, I'll reference it in the, uh, in the show notes. But uh, Chelsea, you actually have some thorny definitional problems that are uh, include a lot of these uh, overlaps of, of history, of different sects and different understanding and interpretations in, in your research. Perhaps it might be an opportunity to, to pivot into that that problem, maybe you could state it. Yes, yeah, so the exact themes that you are talking about here in relation to this vast swath of quote unquote tantric uh, lineages are the same problems I'm coming across in specific in my research, um, which is just the vastness of definitions. Uh, and the thing I'm specifically trying to define for the purposes of this review and potential future research is what you call a special nothing, but it's the experience of a special nothing. There's only been one scale that I've found that's been created, which calls this non-dual awareness. And in this scale, they link together various traditions that have a conception of the experience of non-dual awareness. Um, so one of the questions I really wanted to ask you on this call is that I've been struggling with is, are these experiences of special nothing or non-dual awareness necessarily the same across traditions or could the context, practice and conception of the endpoint of practice potentially inform the actual experience of the emptiness or of the non-self state? So could you have like a Christ flavored emptiness if you go through Christ? Or could you have, um, uh, if you believe that emptiness is empty versus that emptiness has form, would your experience of emptiness then be different? Um, so I looked at your work and I found various examples of, you could say complementary or different views on it. Um, in your uh, book, you have a whole chapter comparing different traditions and talking about the overlap. On the other hand, on page 197, you say you can arrive at zero in a lot of different ways, which in turn give you different experiences. The experience of nothing is path dependent, so to speak. So I'm very curious to get your answer on this topic. What's the contrasting quote, uh, Chelsea? The initial uh, part is not so much about a quote per se, but there's these lists of names for special nothingness from different traditions. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. 
implies a fundamental similarity in experience or that there's something that could be experienced exactly similarly or very close to it if one would only penetrate deeply enough into this special nothingness from any particular angle, if this is making sense. It is totally making sense. And um, I think I, although I was, I in general try to be very careful, one of the things that I have discovered is even people that are good at it and try to be careful about it, sometimes don't say what they mean. And your question uh, is highlighting that. And these are the good questions. The questions where the authority had a bad day. I wasn't saying questions. No, but it's, it's entirely possible because I tell you I do. And the quality <laughs> of what comes out of me is quite different. And I look back and I see all these little mistakes. It's coming at what's happening now. It's so exciting. And, you know, we are living in a different era. That is for sure. So I don't train the co coaches in, in my system. Someone else trains them. And uh, her name is Juliana Ray. So I mean, she was with me for decades. She was with a very senior Zen master for decades. You know, she's done training. Um, uh, so what she does is she's made this very impressive uh, international, well, well, English language, but international uh, training program. Um, and what happens is she feeds back to me the confusion points of the, of the students. So this is completely removed from me. No, anything that I have done this or that, when she tries to convey my ideas, certain patterns of difficulty appear where, God damn it, I thought I had nailed it. Absolutely not. There she says, look, a whole bunch of people can't get this, a whole bunch of people. And then we hash it out, we hash it out. We hash. It's like, okay, you know what? I didn't really say what I meant. And now this leads me to realize, imagine in the old days when these teachers were really authority figures. They said this and they said that. Who's going to challenge it? Who's going to point this out? It's so refreshing to live in the modern era where while I'm still alive, my you know, mistakes and whatever, or inaccuracies in formulating, I, I, I get a chance to at least you know, correct some of that. So it's entirely possible if that, that's a, a real contradiction and a, I was using language, uh, not consistently. Uh, so so that's, this is something we can discuss. Um, well, just to I think, be clear, I was certainly not trying to critique your work, but rather- Well, you should though. <laughs> this is science. Chelsea, this is science. That's the difference. I actually had you, a third you, you do critique. Okay. The yeah. Nobel <laughs> laureate has to defend the same way the PhD candidate. That's what makes I thought. So <laughs> I thought you might share my potential third hypotheses. 
which is that there might be similarities and differences, that there could be some underlying state that has similarities in traditions, but also has differences based on potential neurological variability due to plasticity over time from different practices or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. So I was hoping yeah. that you some sort of view of that nature, not trying to critique. Well, let me, well, let me see what, but that's, you know, that's my soapbox. That's the whole thing. That's what the gurus of the world have to, one of the things the gurus of the world have to learn from science is a new flavor of humility. Um, I mean, they have amazing old flavors, but I can be wrong. I can have a bad day. Uh, <laughs> you know, a beginning student has something to say about the formulation that took me 60 years in science, yeah. And now in this, and that makes it relevant to the modern world. So sorry, I got all, you know, whatever, because that's what I think is so cool. Um, so I suspect that, okay, well, let's tell a, a different story. Let's say there's broadly two sides to practice. Um, get over yourself and transcend the world is one and refine yourself and serve the world is another. That's pretty, in, in a mature formulation, that's either gonna be explicit or implicit. And that's present in Christian practice, uh, not just Buddhism. Um, okay, so from that perspective, the experience of get over yourself and transcend the world um, in its mature form, in other words, the we might call it the liberation aspect for a term, in its mature form, I suspect is the same thing across all traditions, across all humans. However, the way a person chooses to think about it for themselves, or the ways in which they choose to think about it, the ways that they, or way that they may express to others, that is very idiosyncratic and depends on a lot of factors. And so that's what's so frustrating because same words mean something different for Guru X, different words mean the same thing for Gurus Y and Z. And it's like the words, I mean, where are we gonna go? Find the true self. You can find Buddhists that will teach that. My teacher taught me that that's the koan that did it for me. Find the true, who are you? Find the true self. But when you quote answer that koan, you realize there truly never was a thing called a self. So there is no self, that's, and Buddhists and Hindus fought over that in India. They debated those words. But then others said, 
we don't know whether to laugh or cry. How, how could you debate the words? It's like an elephant, blind, you're like blind men. That's where that metaphor comes from. So I suspect that in its mature form, which might take a lifetime, even if you're a monk, um, and certainly you could be a monk and never even get remotely near there, cuculus non facet monacum, a cowl does not make a monk. Um, so I suspect that where it converges to experientially is pretty similar. But how the person talks about it, how they think about it, is going to differ. And that's where we get into an area that is not in my specialty, which is, well, if you're having the same experience, but you're talking about it and thinking about it differently, is it the same experience? That is a philosophical issue. But I can tell you as a teacher, I strongly suspect um, that very senior adepts have pretty much the same experience as far as the liberation aspect goes. Um, but it may be hard to tell that without having some very clear communication, people respecting each other's traditions, but also being uncensored in their interactions. And there's no clock or date. We're gonna have this conversation until we're clear. I suspect that if we got the different senior adepts that may at a given time be saying, no, it's this, no, it's that. And created the right communication protocol and gave them enough time, I, I suspect it would hash out. It's totally integrated in me. I talk about it a dozen different ways. They're exactly the same for me. Yes, I am. Um, I think, I mean, the problem you point to about if people are describing things differently, is it the same thing? And how can we actually uh, know the content of one's experience is simply a hard problem of consciousness studies. Yeah. My dream, and I'm sure that, or I have <laughs> you may share this, uh, which I don't think will happen within my lifetime. The, the real way to get an actual answer to this would be to study states of non-dual awareness or special nothingness or whatever word we choose to use based on the tradition uh, in different advanced practitioners from both subjective, objective, and philosophical standpoints and compare. And then we would be able to establish correlations uh, or uh, relationships between the first and third person data of each individual experience, as well as uh, between the various experiences. And then we'd have an answer, but this is uh, quite a far ways away. So for now it's kind of speculation. Um, however, I do agree with you that uh, studying things in a somewhat interdisciplinary manner may lead to more accuracy, or at least that's my interest because like you say, when you have the lens of a specific discipline, you often get answers that are confined by that particular lens, which for me comes back to the initial problem we keep discussing, which is how to translate ideas from cultures whose lens was completely different to a new lens and have the concept remain the same or elucidate the differences 
between the two concepts as we translate them so that we do justice to the tradition and create accurate operational definitions, which is the whole problem I came across. I thought I was going to get into neurology and I spent three months looking at this issue, just this issue, because it's so That's bad. right. Now, let me reverse the telescope a little bit. And um, uh, say that this issue, what you know, what you have encountered, is a very, very big issue, and um, it may not, it may not be the case that the way to go about things is to somehow resolve the terminology issue and then move forward. The terminology issue may turn out to be a harder problem than the uh, neurobiology, believe it or not, in the end. Yeah. Sure, I, I would be totally willing to believe that. Yeah, so the work you're doing now is a good etude. It's a good practice for, you know, addressing these problems. It's, it's, it's not a waste of time. Yes, um, well, it, it's, it's, I mean, you spend a great deal of time in your What is Mindfulness PDF um, and talking about definition creation. Uh, and I think it's, I love your chart where you look at the different ways to define things. And I think it matters for various reasons. One being, uh, because if we create large umbrella terms, we then have to do later work of disambiguating those things in order to have small enough bite-sized scientific definitions. But two, which is more important to me, is that there's this bi-directional relationship between the definitions we create in science and what people think things are. So as we create definitions, we create concepts, and those concepts could then actually be affecting people's practices. And that's what really motivates my heart more than my head is that I feel the scientific community has a responsibility to, to people's lives that the truths that they create affect. Um, so that's my interest in it. I do agree with you that I could sort of bypass it easily, but I see so much misinformation happening and, and I watch it affecting people's practices negatively. And so it, it deeply concerns me. Um, but I, I think you're right that the neurological uh, phenomena would be easier to just jump to. And I have a ton of theories about that, which I think we're not going to have time for. <laughs> well, maybe we should have another session. I would love that. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I have. Can we do that? We absolutely can. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's just make a part two because we're just getting going. That's delightful. I have five different hypotheses about the potential neurological mechanisms of non-dual awareness that I prepared for you today to, to try to go over with you, some of which include your ideas at the end of your book and some of which are my own thinkings based on research I've read. So we can cover that next time. But um, How many did you say you had? Well, it's kind of Three, four. Five? It, it's four main ones. And then there's a kind of conglomeration um, that, that could be happening. Um, Cool. Yeah, yeah we'll get so. into it. That sounds like quite the sequel. So I think uh, part two. This is this is a cliffhanger. This is the uh, <laughs> quite a cliffhanger. So part two. We'll get into Chelsea's five theories. <laughs> <laughs>
and um, dive deeper into the neurological uh, aspect of this. So Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, thank you very much. Mm. Thank you. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.